Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Say It Loud Network presents Conversations with Dr. Ian Smith. Hey, everybody. Welcome to my show, Conversations with Dr. Ian Smith. As always, I bring you people who you know and some who you don't know, but all of them share the common theme of being successful. Well, I want to take you behind the wall of their success so you can understand in sometimes granular ways what it was that propelled them to overcome the odds. Joining me today is, well, my work wife. We've been together for over 13 years on The Rachel Ray Show Please welcome my really good friend, Rachel Ray. So, Rach, I got to tell you, I want to first start off by saying to you that you and I have known each other for at least 14 years. Um, at least. You were there least. day one, and our show's been around 15 years and change. So, yeah. So, um, <laughs> you, are, you are a work wife to me, um, as well as a friend, and... I want you to know that I follow you on Instagram and because I can't be in studio with you and can't have your food anymore, that when you post your recipes, I actually make them. So tonight I am making the pork chops. They look so good that I was like salivating yesterday. So I went on all the ingredients. I'm going to make them. And what I love about your recipes is not only are they easy, um, but they also are they're eclectic, like you have ingredients I wouldn't think. Do you know what I mean? And then you're like, really? I should put that in? But then when you put it in there, you're like, oh, my goodness. Like, this is this is like the, the greatest thing. suggested with the capers and the maple. Yes. I yes. mean, sweet and salty is a, a, a universal in many diets across the planet for many centuries. That's just sweet and salty, man. It can be as basic as kettle corn is sweet and salty. <laughs> and so you're just... You know, it, when you when you uh, cook often and a lot, you use what you have on hand, especially during a pandemic, and you, you learn that it's just about balanced, as it is for John when he mixes a cocktail, or I imagine when scientists sit down to find balance in uh, harm versus uh, cure when they're when they're building drugs for us. I mean, we hear these long lists of warnings when we have, uh, you know, medicines that are new to the market. I'm sure it's the same thing for everyone that works in anything, music, food, science. Life is about at its most basic balance. Uh, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, my, my family is, uh, Catholic. Uh, but I, I wouldn't say I would not call myself a practicing Catholic. But I do believe in a balance in the universe, and I, I believe in the in the universal golden rule of so many religions, and I think it transfers over to every aspect of life. It's all about balance of good and evil, light and dark, um, and whether you're finding that in yourself or in a recipe or in how you manifest your profession, I do believe all of that is attached. I really do. I know that's trippy and weird and Oh, Probably not point for what you want for your podcast. But I, I really do believe that, that everything is just that simple. It's a balance. And yeah. so 
you know, if you just free your mind a little bit and you look around and you look at uh, a recipe, especially for something like pork, a pork chop or a pork loin or a pork tenderloin, and you're looking around your pantry and you're like, hey, man, what do I have that's sweet and salty? And you can just collect. Like, it just, if you just learn balance, you can do yeah. uh, probably most anything, including uh, if you have the physical capabilities of it, of course, uh, a sport you want to try or an activity you want to try. You know, I just started um, uh, on on Zoom, of course. Uh, you know, I just started proper uh, watercolor classes, you know, because I've always doodled and painted. And now I want to get into each discipline of painting and really learn how to do that properly. And I've been taking, even when my house burned down, I didn't drop my class that week. I went to class and I take Italian online. I mean, until you're dead, you can keep striving and learning and trying to find a balance in your life. It can't all be work and play should be, I, I believe that play should be how you are going to further your mind and your spirit how you're going forward. That's your you time. Your work time is how you help others, how you are of service to the world or your family or, or the things that you aspire for. Your free time should be equally active, in my opinion, but it should be for you. What are the things you would like to pursue when well, you I find gotta, those pockets? I got to imagine I'm taking a watercoloring class and up pops Rachel Ray. Seriously? No one like, said a word. They were just like, hey, and everybody was just asking the teacher questions. And first one I went to was, I mean, nobody's freaked out so far. I don't think I frighten people. <laughs> okay, listen, <laughs> listen, I'm going to take you back. And you got to, I'm already asking you for your um, forgiveness if I mispronounce this, okay? But this is what uh, I want to say to you. Rachel Domenica Scuderi right. or Scuderi? Scuderi. Scuderi Ray yeah. was born in Glen Falls, New York. Glens Falls, plural. Glens with an S, Glens. Glens Falls, Glens, New York. Like, more like possessive, but they dropped the apostrophe a long time ago. Glens okay. Falls, New York. Yep. And so what's up with Glens Falls, New York, and where you come from? Uh, well, we actually, prior to my birth, uh, my mom, she wanted to own restaurants and, and live in, in Cape Cod. That didn't work out so well, gas crises and stuff. Uh Glens Falls is just upstate New York, and um, my grandpa, I guess the real reason we sent her here and came back to here, that my mom came back to here, is because my grandpa came from Sicily. My grandpa was one of 14 uh, children, and the youngest of the 14, the four youngest, the bottom four in the pack, uh, I mean, Catholic, you know me too, (laughs) explain that, right? So... The four youngest, they were uh, lived in Sicily, very poor family, but the family, the, the parents taught only Roman Italian. Sicilians speak very thick dialect, and they are uh, regarded as lesser than in, in, in some parts of Italy, especially northern Italy, central and northern Italy. So my mother's dad, Emanuele, Emanuel Scuderi, he grew up being taught proper Roman Italian, but also they were really trying to share with all of their children the rudimentary basics of English. Mm -hmm. And the four youngest 
of the boys, they all worked in a pottery yard. They were all, as many people in Sicily are, they were all potters. And, and everybody's a farmer. Everybody, you know, raises crops and everybody makes pots. The four boys, my grandpa was a terrible uh, pottery yard worker. He would always wander off with the Pepe was the donkey, the jackass of the family. <laughs> and he would just get lost with the donkey and go to the beach. <laughs> you know, like he just, he was not down. He was a child, you know, he came here when he was 14. So if you're 10, 11, 12, you want to throw pots all day, you want to go swim in the ocean with your pet donkey. That's right. So Pepe was the donkey, but Pepe and Manny, my my grandpa, they'd get lost. So he wasn't really made to be a pottery worker to begin with. But when they came here, they actually landed first in Boston, but they wouldn't take them. The boat had too many sick people. So wow. they got booted to New York. And my grandpa came through Ellis Island and I bought him a brick there when they were trying to renovate it. Mm -hmm. And he's in the book. He's in both books because he was received, but then turned away in Boston <laughs> and then received at Ellis Island. And uh, he and his uh, brothers uh, landed in New York and they didn't like it. It frightened them. The ghettos of lower Manhattan then, uh, quite frankly, just scared them. They were so filled with disease and violence and crime. They just didn't care for it. So they took off and they went up the Hudson. They followed water. They just went up and up and up. And eventually they landed in Ticonderoga here at the top of Lake George, uh, where the water almost touches Lake Champlain, Lake George, kind of meat on this weird peninsula. And they got jobs there in a pottery yard. And there's a lot of natural clay there. And they were also rebuilding all of these forts as historic sites. So uh, immigrants could get a lot of work there as masons um, and bricklayers and pottery workers. Yeah. They all started, the four boys started in a pottery yard and then the, the yard burned. And especially Sicilians uh, are, are very superstitious in, in nature. Mm. Uh, and very emotional and volatile. And when uh, Niccolo, the youngest boy, died, they none of the boys would go back to the yard for work. So they each had to learn a new profession. Wow. My grandpa became a stonemason. And that was very controversial because to be a successful mason, you had to join the mason club, which would make you a heretic in the Catholic religion. So it was a big deal to be in with the mostly white guys that were the stonemasons and had this lodge, it was sure. a big deal for an Italian immigrant Catholic, you know, to, yeah. to, to get in and, and get a good job and earn good money. But he did. He became a stonemason. He built the house my mother grew up in. He had 10 children. My mother was the first. And to, as, as I've shared many times, to hear the stories of my mom's childhood, you would think she was... Uh, some sort of Russian princess or something. She had such a life, but they were so poor. They had nothing, but their life sounded to me so magical and full. And that's because of the quality of life he gave them. It was filled with music and food and laughter. And no matter what time of day it was, he had no rules for his children. If the Northern lights were out, 
He would wake his children in the middle of the night and take them outside and sing to them and play the concertina and sing them arias or old standard uh, songs. He would make their food before he went to work. He'd make their food when it was still dark out and it would sit in the oven all day and cook low and slow. He canned everything. He grew most everything they ate. My grandmother was a baker and a seamstress. My grandfather did all the other jobs in the house. My mom was his first. So I was her middle, but I was always at grandpa's side from the time I was born. You have a quote about your grandfather. You said, quote, my grandfather knew how to make everything. And fortunately, he taught my mother. There are too many recipes to think of picking a favorite. But if I had to, stuff artichokes with tons of anchovies, breadcrumbs, and cheese. Well, my grandpa, I mean, that's a really old one. But yes, it's the general thing. My grandpa and I, we're always together from the time uh, my mom didn't trust uh, people to watch her children. And she was a working person. So grandpa was my, basically my nanny, my, my no-no, which means uh, grandpa in Italian was my, was also my nanny. <laughs> uh, and, and I, I was with him all of the time. My grandpa, his favorite flavors were sardines, anchovies. He's Sicilian. He likes, you know, the flavor of uh, fish and poor people eat a lot of sardines and anchovies. What can I tell you? And around the holidays, he would make stuffed artichokes. But just the smell of anchovies and garlic and oil is the point of it. Uh, aglio, aglio, garlic and oil, spaghetti, he'd always melt anchovies into. Uh, pasta con sarde starts the same way, but you melt sardines instead of anchovy. And uh, there's always breadcrumbs involved. At Christmas, you stuff it all in an artichoke so it looks like a giant green Kind of a cross between a Christmas tree and a a star, like a, mm-hmm. the star Bethlehem or something. You know, it's all these pointy, twisty leaves curling around those flavors. But I mean, that's very traditional Sicilian food. It's also the reason I had no friends in kindergarten. I always had a sardine sandwich with onions, you know, and or something that smelled very strongly of garlic. It doesn't make for many friends. In fact, there's a chapter called that in my last book, the 50 book. <laughs> there's a whole yeah, chapter mentioned- that's called... Yeah, sardines don't make the friends. <laughs> yeah, actually, what, what I love about the chapter, you actually mentioned about the day that you were teased in school because of your, yeah, yeah. your being sneaky. And sardine went, sandwich. That's right. You went home choking and cr- choke crying, basically, and gasping, yeah. as you say, like a sea lion. He taught me the most important lesson I have ever learned. He he got me to calm down. He put a cold cloth on my forehead and he sat me down on the bed and made me stretch out. I took my socks and shoes off and he kept putting my arms up and down and making me just breathe. And then he said, he tapped my head and he said, what's in here? And I said, my brain. And he made me count my fingers and my toes. I have 10 fingers. I have 10 toes. And my grandfather's advice was, you have 10 fingers, you have 10 toes in a brain. You have absolutely nothing to complain about. All of this is just nonsense. And the more I would cry and fight with him, the more he would laugh in my face and make fun of me. <laughs> to him, it was completely ridiculous. And if I didn't like the teacher took my book away because the other kids couldn't read yet, well, who cares? We'll read at home. If people didn't like my lunch, that's sad for them. 
our lunch tastes nice. But if you don't want to take your lunch tomorrow, fine. We can make something different or you can take some change and, and get some lunch at the lunch line. Really, all he taught me was choose what you're going to cry about because that will matter. And it's very true. We shouldn't spend so much time so self-absorbed and feeling sorry for ourselves and uh, looking at and thinking about how much we have, how much we don't have. Being so preoccupied with just the get yeah, or what you've got or how you look or your collections of things, especially through the year that we've lived through. I mean, this is a superfluous conversation, I think, for most of us now. You just don't care about that in the end, and you never will. The lesson is better learned earlier than to have to live through all that vanity. Decades of vanity is an energy suck, and I think it will slow down your life and and your ability to earn, and your certainly your ability to learn. If you only work for money or vanity, you won't have anything ever, in my opinion, worth anything. I, I agree 100%. But I also realize people would ask me, how is she able to bounce back after that totally devastating fire of her house with all of her stuff in it? And yet the next week, she's back up like nothing ever happened. And your story of what your grandfather taught you what to cry about is manifest in your resiliency. Yeah, I... There are always, literally, sadly, millions of examples of people that have it worse. I had a house and it burned. There are people that don't have a home or they're getting evicted. Mm. There are literally 30 million adults uh, and I think over 7 million children in last week's poll uh, uh, that say that they didn't have enough to eat. When you think about the fact I had something to lose to begin with, wow. And it's stuff. The stuff that I lost that, that hurt my feelings and made me sad were things like my letters from my mom because she's technically uh, legally blind now because of macular degeneration. She has peripheral vision, but she can't write scripts. She can't cook the way she used to. So it's things that were very personal, like all of her beautifully scripted letters over the years and recipes and things she just jotted down to share with me. Uh, her ring, her uh, high school ring, uh, things like that, you know, little personal things. Those are things, yes, you can mourn them, uh, almost as if they had like a little soul or had a little life of their own. But stuff is stuff. And I had a very beautiful house that's being rebuilt. I'm very lucky and blessed. And in the same summer, parts of Oregon and Northern California, Washington State burned. They have never had a history of this ever. Uh, it, there were so many people that lost their farms, their livelihoods, literally everything they had. I walked across the street. I built this little house here. I took over... Just three, I think it was about three years ago, and we made a, a guest place here. And now mm -hmm. it's our it's it's our home. This is the place we've been, of course, since our, our house burned down. But that fire didn't come down the hill. It didn't take my mom's home. She's right across the street. It didn't take this place. I had a place to go. I left in flip-flops, but I had many friends and family that would bring me or send me shoes and clothes. There are always people that have it worse than we do. 
until mm-hmm. you're literally taking your last breath, in my opinion, you have to be very careful about what you complain about. And you have to be very mindful of what you have, not what you have lost. Okay. And that's that's just the people that I grew up with. And there, there are many tears we shed all the time. And of course, uh, eventually I cried. It took a long time. Eventually I cried for my house. Uh, I cried for Isabu when she died in my arms in the same summer, in the same amount of time. Your dog, But yes. I had the grace of being with her at the end of her life, the entire end of her life. Right. Uh, she was uh, over 15. She had cancer, catastrophic back injury. Um, and she was so strong and beautiful inside and out. And I believe she was just hanging on for us. But she died in my arms with grace. And mm-hmm. when you think about the hundreds and hundreds of thousands, millions of people, literally all over this planet, including friends of mine that have lost siblings, really close loved ones, where they could not touch their hand. I mean, you have to put these things in perspective. I got to hold my dog when she died. A lot of people didn't get to hold their child, their mother, their cousin, their grandmother. I got to walk across the street to a safe haven when my house burned twice. <laughs> the first day it burned pretty much to the ground and then it caught back on fire the next day. But I had a place to go. That happened to so many other citizens in my country, so many other Americans, let alone looking at what the world went through. Just in my own country, look at how many people suffered worse this year. Yeah. And I think that work is a another blessing. I still had a job I could do. And the reason I went back to work so quickly was the first thing I did the same week my house burned, I did a 10,000 person cooking class with children from all over the world. Wow. If you can't love that, That's making right. spaghetti, little teeth That's from right. all over the world, I mean, there's more wrong with you than you lost your house. You may have lost your very soul. That's what brings you know me back to go. That makes you go again. You sure. have to look at what you have. You can't spend time thinking about what you do not. Well, talking about class, I'm glad you mentioned that, by the way. You worked at, at a gourmet shop in Albany called Cohen or Cowan and Lobel. Cowan um, and Lobel, where Donna, my one of my best friends to this day, to this day, we are so tight. Dear friends, uh, we started to sell cooking classes stupidly without costing them out. And all of the local chefs wanted too much money. We wouldn't have made any money on them. We just thought it would be a great sales boost around the holidays. <laughs> <laughs> so we sold all these cooking classes without asking the, the, the chefs that we would need to hire to teach them how much they wanted. So Donna said, well, why don't you just teach the food? Everybody loves your food. And I'm like, well, because Donna, I'm not like a culinary queen. I don't have a CIA degree. She says, nobody cares. They like your food. Think about the audience here. They just want to eat your food anyway. Go ahead, teach them your food. And that's how we started 30-Minute Meals. And I say we because she's the one who encouraged me. And that's how I went on the local news and got Food Network and then at the daytime show and all that. Donna and I are great friends. Uh she her her passion was actually um, beauty and hair care and uh, all that maquillage and stuff. She has a hair salon now. All these years later, oh, oh wow! Because it's what she loves, and she she just uh, cut Maria's hair with a mask. 
<laughs> in, in her COVID safe, in her COVID safe environment. She just uh, did my sister Maria's hair last night. No joke. No, no kidding. <laughs> uh, you know, it's interesting. I always talk to people about kind of those those moments, those transcendent moments where things change for them, those pivotal moments. Um, you were doing a local promotional tour after publishing your first book in 1999 and a famous cooking show coach named named Lou Ekus or Ekus, who also no, trained. No, Lou, yeah, Lou Ekus was a um, a man that lectured at the at the CIA in Hyde Park at the Culinary Institute of America. And he was also friends of Bob Tushman, who was the vice president of uh, Food Network at the time. And Bob is my friend to this day. He teaches at NYU. And I am a guest speaker from time to time in his classes there to present day. Everyone in my life is still in my life. It's so beautiful. I love that. I love, I love that, that continuity. Yeah, yep. it's, it's, it's a beautiful thing. Anyway, Lou... Uh, he's listening one day, and I was teaching 30-minute meals at Cowan and LaBelle with my friend Donna, my boss, my, my girlfriend. And we were just trying to get people to buy more groceries. They said they weren't buying the groceries in because they didn't know how to cook. Mm. So I thought, well, just we'll just take the long game, show them how to cook, and then we'll make more money because they'll buy more stuff. Right. Cool. <laughs> uh, so... So, and I'm a big long game person in, in every sport. I, I look at the long game. And, and so, I mean, that's just the way I look at life. So I'm doing the long game, doing the cooking classes and I'm on the local news, uh, because they came to film the class because it really became this happening. We had Girl Scouts, brides, grooms, uh, uh, senior centers. We had all these different groups that were coming in to do like team building and learn how to cook at the same time. We became this phenomenon. We were the best selling item in our store was my stupid series of 30 minute meals. It wasn't stupid, but oh, basically it, it was a, it was a three hour course. In over three hours, I taught six base recipes. And I gave you five different ways you could use them. So in three hours time, you could learn recipes that could all be done in 30 minutes or less. And you could make a different meal every night for one solid month for an entire 30 days and never repeat yourself. So that was the promise of the course. Right. Then it became a local news story. And then it became a local news once a week. I would wear my cap and go to someone's home or a firehouse or a cop's house or a school teacher's house or a, a young girl um, wanting to cook for uh, a young gentleman and, you know, hoping he'll, you know, he'll he'll ask her one day, that kind of thing. So uh, every week I would teach in someone's home or firehouse or another location this little 30 minute meal. So I, I had a friend who worked at public radio, Joe Donahue. He still works in public radio in Albany. And Joe called me panicking at the store and I'm checking in the cheese order. I'm cooking a vat of, of chicken tenders. Like I got a lot going on at the store at Count LaBelle, right? And he calls me on the kitchen line and he's like, my guest canceled. My guest canceled. You have to come over here right now. Cook something, cook anything, just come. I'm like, Joe, you're on the radio. No one can see me. So what, what's that about? 
Joe, you don't have a license to cook in a radio station that I know of. So you're get fined and the police or the fire department will probably come. Joe, do you have a stove? And what do you want me to do? I have a hot plate. I have a hot plate. So I went over and I made I made jambalaya illegally in a radio studio for NPR for for the local national public radio in in Albany, uh, our local affiliate for them. And uh, and Lou Eckes was teaching at the CIA in Hyde Park. And when he left, he he put on public radio and he heard me making jambalaya, like jambalaya, but you can make it in half an hour. And he called. <laughs> Bob Tushman, and he said, Bob, I don't know how old she is, what she looks like, if she has three heads, nine <laughs> nostrils, but this is a very funny person, and she's making food in a radio studio, studio illegally on a hot plate. You might want to meet this person. <laughs> uh, and, and, and so Bob calls the same weekend of this huge snowstorm it was supposed to be four feet of snow in New York City. It wasn't. It was like four inches. And <laughs> Al Roker is from upstate New York. Right. The same time all this stuff is happening, Al Roker had been gifted this little tiny itty bitty 30 minute meal collection. It was only sold in the grocery store here because I had been teaching 30 minute meals for so long. People were clamoring to have them. And a single woman publishing house, Hiroko Kiffner, printed these books and just sold them to the grocery store to sell them in the grocery store because no bookseller would buy my book. So we had this little book called 30 Minute Comfort Foods in the grocery store and someone gave it to Al Roker because they live in Albany in upstate uh -huh. New York. So Al's producer sees my little tiny, little square, like a little tiny thing like that would be by the register in a normal bookstore. Mm -hmm. This little tiny square book of, of 30 minute comfort food. And he puts it on his desk and it gets put into some folder. And the same weekend that the Lou Eckes thing happened, his producer, Michelle, I remember her name. Michelle was Al Roker's producer. Michelle finds in this folder on Al's desk, this 30 minute comfort food book and invites me to come to the Today Show because every guest had canceled for the snowstorm that never happened in New York. <laughs> I drove together, white knuckled, sharing the driving to New York with all my pots and pans in an apple crate. No joke. No joke. To the Today Show, through the snowstorm that did come here but didn't go there, white knuckled and got there at like four in the morning. And I, I made a 30-minute comfort food for Al Roker. And I got my call from Food Network on that Monday. But all that happened at the same time, which makes me believe in the in the long game and the fabric of the universe, things happening for a reason and having some sort of faith, no matter what you believe or what religion you grew up in. You have to have faith, at least in your fellow man and yourself. And I believe in a much larger entity. I do believe uh, in, in, in God and a fabric to the universe. Absolutely. Oh, Am I a perfect Catholic? No. Am I a perfect anything? No. Do I believe in something larger to myself? Uh, absolutely. Do I believe in doing unto others at least as well as I'd like them to do unto me? Of course. 
taking care of my fellow man, feeding my neighbor. Yes. As long as I have breath or $1 in my pocket, I will treat everyone in my life the same. And you know what? That is demonstrative of who you are as a person. You built, of course, 30-minute meals into a huge empire. 20-plus cookbooks later, you're still hot. Let me end this. I know you have to go, but let me do what I call the random seven. These are seven questions. And here we go. They're quick answers, so just one or two sentences. Here we go. What does success look like to Rachel Ray? I wake up in the morning. (laughs) I have a roof over my head. Success is a constant pursuit for me. I think I am successful because I've given back to my neighbors and I've done that poor or, or wealthy, didn't matter to me. And so every day to me can be a new success story if I, if I have imagination and I'm just happy to open my eyes. What do you own that's really expensive but you don't feel guilty about? I guess my, my, my home. I don't really feel guilt. I work very hard and I share my money. I've given away more money than I thought I'd earn in five lifetimes. I don't mm-hmm. feel money in a guilty way like that. I never have. I've always shared, uh, period, whether I had $10 in the bank uh, or g- gajillions. I-, I don't even keep track of what I earn. Or I- There's people that are better suited for that. Uh, I actually don't care about it. I think it's kind of vulgar to even think about it, and I don't. I love that. Which person or celebrity did you always have a crush on and why? Tom Jones. I couldn't even look at him the first time he came on the show. I literally could not look at his face. When I was a little girl, I hated wearing dresses, hated it. You could not drag me into a dress because you couldn't run. And people were always telling you people could see your underwear, push your skirt down. I hated dresses because they just wanted to be more active than dresses allowed little girls to be right. So I always wanted to be in pants and we used to call them dungarees and jeans and pants and stuff, you know. And the only time of the week you could get me in a dress was the Tom Jones show because I thought Tom could see me. And I would put a dress on and I would push my hair down nice and I would go in and pull the chair, drag the chair, probably the same weight as my body at the time. I would drag it chair in front of the television and I would sit right there and when he started to dance on he had like a disco floor like in Saturday Night Fever when he started to dance on the disco floor I'd pop out of the chair and I'd mimic him singing into my own hand and I just desperately thought he could see me mad crush on Tom Jones uh, I've had many crushes over the years after that of course but it was pretty creepy for a three or I don't know maybe I was four or five I was a little girl and I used to wander around the house singing Delilah, a very famous Tom Jones song. And that is wildly disturbing because Delilah jilted her boyfriend. The song is sung by the boyfriend who, because she cheated, goes over, watches them and murders her. Oh, geez. (laughs) And then blames blames Delilah. It was all Delilah's fault. It is the most misogynistic, horrible. It's it's horrible. It's like a Law and Order episode. And she's just singing it like it was Amazing Grace or something. Like you know, like it was a church song. I mean, I would go around the house with huge arm sweeps and dance moves of I I I Delilah, 
And I sounded like a psycho killer, like the movie Child's Play, like I was going to come at you with a knife. <laughs> All right, here we go. You ready? Yeah. If you weren't doing what you do, mm. what would be your dream job? A drummer, a rock drummer, 10,000%. Uh, there's a great, like, second list, um, a photographer, um, a war journalist, but I, I, I think I would be too emotional all the time to have been as successful at that as I'd like to believe I could be. But uh, basically, I, I want to be a drummer. I, I would love to be a successful rock drummer. Number five, your favorite chef or cook outside of yourself? Uh, that's complicated. Currently, of course, Jose Andres, probably the, the, the greatest living chef on the planet, but because of the work he does to save our planet, Jacques Pepin, my dear friend, absolutely tied the greatest uh, living chef uh, right, right there alongside Jose. And very special ties. You know, Jacques Pepin goes all the way back to he and Pierre Frani. Uh, started kind of the, the, the cool or chefs making money married with big business. They, Pierre Freni was the first person to earn a million dollars from Howard Johnson to create all of their recipes. And his suit was, uh, Jacques Pepin. And Jacques Pepin, the room I'm sitting in is filled with his art. I'm an enormous fan of not only his food, but his artwork. And I have watched, uh, I don't know how many hundreds of hours of Jacques cooking, completely mesmerized, both in person on our show, a uh, tiny bit of time, but uh, his television programs with Julia, his own, uh, the videos that uh, came with Essential Pepin of uh, just Jacques making eggs. I, I could watch Jacques like just make eggs and bone a chicken with a little paring knife all day. So yeah. the... Two greatest yeah. living chefs right now are them. Marcella Hazan, uh, rest her soul, was extremely important to me. Julia Child, of course, I watched as, as a child with my mom, and we had such fun. There are people that are no longer with us that I value deeply. Uh, but the people in my immediate life and in my immediate circle are, of course, my grandpa and my mother, are the largest influences on what I cook or who I am as a person and a, and a cook. I never call myself a chef, but there, there's a lot of influences in my life. Luckily, I got to meet Jacques Pepin because I was on the show one day he was on. And so thank you for allowing me to have that interface. Question six of seven. Here we go. Who would you like to have a long dinner with who you haven't met and why? Well, there's people that I have met, but haven't had a long dinner with. Okay. I'll take that. I guess I guess I haven't met her. I, I've certainly met him. Uh, I guess the new administration. I want to be of service to my country and my my neighbors in my community. And because of the type of programming we do on our show, I'd like to see improvements um, at every level, federal on down, uh, state and local, of course. Uh, to people caring for each other so that we don't have to show stories about uh, people that take it upon themselves to figure out all that stuff that we should already be doing. So mm -hmm. I guess I'd like to have right now a conversation with the new administration, but I think they're a little busy to do that. Well, you mean <laughs> and, Amanda, I, I, and, and Amanda Gorman, I, I would love to sit and chat with her. 
I, I really would. I, 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 uh, I read a lot. I bought my apartment, uh, because of its proximity to the strand. And I love that, uh, instead of being a voracious reader, she's a voracious writer. She just eats up all of the words so beautifully. And, uh, she's such an inspiration, uh, to, to, to what we have to look forward to. You know, we, we need this next couple of generations to really hit it out of the ballpark. We're in a precarious place. And, uh, I would love to learn from someone who is clearly so touched by the universe and gifted and who has worked and strived so hard, um, uh, and, and dedicated herself so clearly. Um, to the pursuit of, of becoming stronger and more brilliant, but never perfect. I love how humble she is. I love the way she left the podium and just glanced at people and held her hands to her chest. I love that her poem talks so much about the importance of humility and mm. about the fact that we won't ever get to the perfect. And there, there's, But there's always this beautiful place of hope and light uh, I'd love to hear her thoughts on um, hunger. Uh, you know, I think our infrastructure is our young people. And I have been trying to solve the problem of feeding the world's young. Like, why, why is this an issue? Why, when we have so much, is this still a talking point? Why do so many kids, you know, you can't learn, you can't focus, you can't think if you can't eat. Mm. So, you know. I'm sure she's done uh, many works on it. I only have one of her two books, but I, I bet you somewhere in there, there's there's some great nuggets on that. But uh, I, I always want to sit down with people that can teach me something now. And I'm always surprised, Ian. Uh, I think the most incredible people I'm going to sit down with next week are the ones I haven't met yet. Just the mm. ones we love their stories and and I want to get to know them. And Alex uh, Smith, for instance, he, uh, there's an athlete there, a man who will go down in history. I've never spoken to him personally, and I'm so moved by all of his standards and what he's learned as a human being, what his capabilities are, what the human body is capable of, uh, mm -hmm. what your spirit is capable of, what an inspiration he is. So next week, that's the person I'm looking most forward to. In general... I'm always looking to the people that inspire me. So the new administration, that young poet, and who knows who I'll come up with next week. <laughs> All right, here we go. Last question. You ready for this? Okay. When someone comes across an article written about you a hundred years from now, what do you want that article to say about you? I have no idea. I don't really think I'd read it. I never look at anything that people write about me. I'm more interested in what 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 what's happening next rather than what happened before. Um, my my feelings got hurt so much when celebrity came into my life in the beginning. It mattered to me more. I care more about what I give to the world than whether or not people like me now or what they might say about me after I'm gone. That doesn't concern me as much as what purpose I can find while I'm here. It used to really hurt my feelings. Like there were whole, there was a whole site called I Hate Rachel Ray, like an entire thing devoted to just hating me. 
Mm. <laughs> a waitress from upstate New York who likes to make dinner. I mean, really, this is <laughs> this is what you're doing with your day. Uh, but and and every time I did interviews, people would just read me things that other famous people had said about me that were mean. Yes. I'm like, what's the point in that? What? Why am I here? Do you really just need ratings so bad you just literally want to make people cry? And so I didn't let it make me cry after a while. I learned that that uh, was the same lesson my grandpa taught me when I was a kid. Not everybody will like you on the playground. Not everybody's going to like me on the playground after I'm dead. So if I'm dead, I don't care what you said or will say about me. I care what you're doing and what you're saying to make that day and the days ahead of you better. Way more important than gossiping about me. I'll leave it there. I love you. I love you too, Ian. I really do. Conversations with Dr. Ian Smith is hosted by Dr. Ian Smith, associate producer Lauren Turner, executive producer Ian Smith, edited by Ken Johnson, executive producers Omar Thompson, Andrew Kalb, and Ken Johnson. Find the Conversations with Dr. Ian Smith podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, or wherever you get your podcasts. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah. That's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.